As we turn to God's word, our scripture reading this morning is from Mark chapter 5, the story of the raising of Jairus' daughter and the healing of the woman with the issue of blood, where the Lord takes these, or where Mark takes these two uh, separate stories and uh, weaves them together for us, stories that have uh, much in common. Uh, both of these girls are referred to as daughters. One of them has been alive for 12 years, is now on the verge of death. The other, for 12 years also, has been afflicted with much bleeding. The Lord has grace on both of them. We'll begin reading at Mark chapter 5, verse 21. Now when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered to him, and he was by the sea. And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name, and when he saw him, he fell at his feet. And begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be healed, and she will live. So Jesus went with him, and a great multitude followed him and thronged him. Now a certain woman had a flow of blood for twelve years, and had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had. It was no better, but rather grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Immediately, the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? But his disciples said to him, You you see the multitude thronging you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see her who had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him. And told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. While he was still speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? And as soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not be afraid, only believe. And he permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw a tumult and those who wept and wailed loudly. When he came in, he said to them, Why make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. But when he had put them all outside, he took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him and entered where the child was lying. Then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha Kumi, which is translated, Little girl, I say to you, arise. 
Immediately, the girl arose and walked, for she was 12 years of age. And they were overcome with great amazement. But he commanded them strictly that no one should know it, and said that something should be given her to eat. Beloved, as we've just witnessed the baptisms of two daughters, Elodie and Eliana, we've been reminded yet again that God is the one who must save our children, that they cannot do it themselves, and, and neither do we have the power to cleanse them of their sin or give them new life. But God must do this by his Spirit. And yet even as we've been reminded of our helplessness this morning, we're also reminded in Mark chapter 5 that Jesus comes to help the helpless. That Jesus comes to help the desperate and the needy like Jairus and his daughter, like this woman with the issue of blood. Reminded that he hears the cries of fathers and mothers who plead for their children. He even uh, hears the cry of one who had no one to plead for her. And that oftentimes he does far more for us than we've either asked or imagined. Jairus, he came to Jesus asking for healing, and he got resurrection. That nameless daughter with the issue of blood, she came to Jesus for physical healing, and yet he saved both her body and her soul. As we see in Mark chapter 5 this morning that this Jesus who the gospel writers are setting before us is worth entrusting ourselves to and worth entrusting our children to. In fact, he is the only one worth entrusting them to. He comes to bring help to the helpless. He comes to bring help to the desperate and the needy, people like Jairus, people like the woman with the issue of blood, people like you and people like me, people like Elodie and people like Eliana. And so as we look at these two stories this morning that that Mark uh, so beautifully weaves together for us, my prayer is that by the Spirit of the Lord, our faith would be strengthened as we behold Christ's power And as we behold Christ's compassion in this tale of two daughters, we're going to be first at verses 21 to 24 where we meet a desperate father. Um, Jairus was a synagogue ruler in in Capernaum, meaning he was something like an an elder at the local synagogue. Boys and girls, this would be um, kind of like uh, one of of the um, elders in our church. And what happens is um, his child is very sick, and and so it would be as if one of our our elders were to go before Jesus and fall down at his feet and say, my little daughter is at the point of death. This synagogue ruler, this elder from the, the synagogue in Capernaum says, come and lay your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. Or literally, in the Greek, it says that she will be saved and live. This already is an impressive faith. Jairus believed that all Christ had to do was touch her and she would be saved. And even more impressive is the fact that Jairus makes this confession in front of what verse 21 tells us is a large crowd. 
Because if you're just reading through the book of Mark from, from cover to cover, what you would already have seen by now is that this Jesus is a fairly controversial figure. So far in Mark's gospel, the the Pharisees have plotted together about how they might destroy him. Mark 3.6. They have accused him of being in league with demons. Mark 3.22. Of doing the miracles that he does by the power of the prince of demons. This is the perception of Christ by the religious elite. And so Jairus a ruler in one of the synagogues, is putting himself in somewhat of a vulnerable position. What are the people going to say about him next Sabbath? John 12, 42, uh, the Pharisees say that those who confess faith in Christ are to be put out of the synagogue. Is that what's going to happen with Jairus? As he shows up, is he going to be barred entry because he has confessed faith in Christ? He's swimming upstream here. He's going against the grain. He's risking his reputation. He's risking his position in the synagogue. But he's desperate, and so he falls at the feet of Christ, and our text tells us he begs or pleads earnestly. He implores the great physician, heal my daughter. And his earnestness, And his desperation are illustrative of the kind of earnest pleading that we're to have in prayer as we come before this same God, especially as we pray for our children. Yes, we ought to be confident that God will do a work in their heart, that he will save them, even as Jairus asks of Christ, but we shouldn't be presumptuous and neglect this kind of pleading. Jairus is an example of the kind of desperation that we ought to have as we pray for our children. Each time I come back to this passage, I'm convicted. Do my prayers for my children reflect this kind of earnestness that would lead me to to beg the Lord to bless them even as I laid his feet in the middle of a crowd? Do your prayers for your children reflect this kind of faith? If we're honest, oftentimes we are not nearly as earnest as this man in, in pleading for our children bringing them before the throne of grace and doing the very thing that we've seen Job doing as we've been looking through the book of Job in in rising early to intercede for his children, offer sacrifices for them just in case they might have sinned. There's a book a couple of years ago that I found quite helpful in encouraging this kind of thing called Five Things to Pray for Your Kids that lists several helpful petitions that might fuel this, this kind of earnest prayer. You can pray, of course, that God will give them the gift of faith. You can pray that that God will help them to make their boast in Christ alone. You can pray for our children that they would grow to be like Jesus, conformed to his image, that he would prepare them for good works, that he would fill them with spiritual fruit and furnish them with spiritual gifts, allowing them to serve in his church. We should pray that they would find their identity in him and not in their success or anything else. We can pray for our children that they would not fear man, but would have a boldness in their faith, even as Jairus does here. We can pray that they would deny themselves and consider others more important, as it says in Philippians 2, that they would uh, make use of, of the means of grace and sit attentively under the word of Christ, and that one day they would be seated at his table 
that they would publicly profess their faith and come to be seated at Christ's table. We can pray that God would surround them with people who encourage them to love Christ more and not less, and yet also that he would enable them to have influence on those who don't know Christ. Pray for our children that he would teach them humility and compassion, that he would lead them not into temptation, but deliver them from evil as we get to know our children and take note of the specific ways that they are tempted. We bring those sins before the Lord and ask that he would grow them in those ways. And that he would enable them to persevere to the end and be transformed into the likeness of Christ's glorious body when Christ comes again and our bodies are raised. The word of God in Philippians 3.21 says our lowly bodies will be transformed into the likeness of his glorious body. These are the, the things that we should pray for our children. Even as they grow old and move out of the house, we should pray these things for our children. We should pray these things for our grandchildren. And Christ, in verse 24 of our passage, gives any of us who may be slow to engage in this task all the more reason to do so as he demonstrates his compassionate willingness to answer Jairus' request. Look at verse 24 of our passage. It says, so Jesus went with him. So Jesus went with him. Even in the busyness of having just been kicked out of the region of the Gadarenes, that's what happened in the first 20 verses of our our passage. Remember, uh, the the legion of demons that Christ cast out and those demons uh, go into the herd of pigs that that run over the the side of of the hill and they are angered by this. And so so they, they chase Jesus out. Even in the busyness of that having just happened and Jesus now getting in the boat, coming across, and, and as he gets off, no doubt tired, It says that there is this great throng waiting for him. Yet even in the busyness of just getting off the boat and being surrounded by this great crowd, Jesus takes the time for this man. Oftentimes, as parents, we're not so quick to take the time for our children or for others as we're in the busyness of our own work. We have our our minds set on what we're doing. And yet Jesus shows his willingness to be interrupted. By going with him, Jesus demonstrates his compassion. Jesus demonstrates his willingness to hear our earnest plea. Jesus demonstrates that he is approachable. He's accessible. As one commentator writes, despite the fawning crowd, Christ shows himself to be interruptible as he enters the desperation of this lonely parent. Jesus went with him. And that one simple statement, Mark testifies to Christ's commitment to minister to our needs, to be with us in our trials, and to hear us when we cry out to him. Jesus comes to help this helpless man, which is good news for us, since we too are in many ways helpless, since we too do not have the power to, to change our children's circumstances or to save them that they might live, as Jairus says, we don't even have the power to guard them from a common cold. But we can entrust them to the one who does. And to the one who, as he shows us in Mark chapter 5, cares for them even more than we do. And we know that he cares 
Because as all of this is going on, we see that the interruptible Jesus is willing to be interrupted again. And so Jairus' request is going to have to wait. As right here in the middle of all of this, we, we meet this, this other desperate daughter who comes to Christ. This other desperate daughter who, who this time there is no one pleading her case and yet Christ cares for her. And he too enters into her need and her loneliness and her desperation. We've met a desperate father, now we meet a desperate daughter beginning in verse 25 where it says, a certain woman had had a flow of blood for 12 years. Now, we perhaps are not as well-versed in the Old Testament as some of Mark's first-century readers might have been, uh, but many of them, as they heard this, their minds would have quickly gone to Leviticus chapter 15. Leviticus 15, it says that if a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her regular menstrual impurity, then all the days of her discharge, she will continue in uncleanness meaning she is ceremonially unclean. And it goes on to say, every bed on which she lies will become a bed of impurity. Every chair on which she sits will be unclean. And anyone who touches these things will be unclean also. You shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness lest they die by defiling my tabernacle. We've learned a little bit about Uh, Social distancing and quarantining and people being regarded as unclean in the last couple of years. This woman well understood that. She was regarded by all around her as unclean. Do not touch. Do not go near her. Every time someone looked at her and stepped away, she would have been reminded of her impurity Suffering, no doubt, from from physical pain, but also suffering from emotional pain. As she was reminded of this every day, as she was limited in in the sorts of relationships that she could enjoy, she couldn't know a man. She wouldn't have been allowed in the synagogue. In Leviticus 15, it says, lest they die by defiling my tabernacle. She was not allowed in the public worship of God's people. And so she suffered emotionally, she suffered relationally, she suffered spiritually. And beyond that, our text tells us that she suffered many things from many physicians as her condition grew not better, but worse. Maybe some of you here today have had that experience where you go to a doctor trying to get something figured out and it's only made worse. That was this woman's experience every single time. And not only had it caused her much pain and no doubt much disappointment, but Mark 5 also tells us that it had eaten up her savings so that now she's left with nothing. Then it says she heard a report about Jesus. And if this was a woman who was well-versed in in the Old Testament, she she might have wondered, could, could this be the one who Malachi said would rise with healing in his wings? Could this be the one whose robe, Zechariah said, the Gentiles would grab hold of because they know that God is with him? Oh, if I could just grab hold the hem of his garment, I'll be made well. I'll be healed. 
I know that he's busy. I, I can see that, that he's, he's got this great throng about him. I can see that he's going to heal this man's daughter. If I could just sneak in from behind and just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be made well. And so this desperate daughter demonstrates equally astonishing faith. As uh, the church father Jerome said, her touch on the hem of his garment is the cry of a believing heart. That's what Christ says in verse 34. As he commends her actions to us as faith. So Christ is is saying through the inspired text in Mark 5, Christ is saying through the preaching of his word to us this morning, I want you to have that kind of a believing heart that if you just touch the hem of my garment, you'll be made well. That if you come to Christ, you will be saved. Maybe you're here this morning and you feel a little bit like this woman suffering physically, suffering socially and spiritually, suffering financially. You've exhausted all of your resources and you're not exactly sure what to think of this Jesus. He's saying, grab hold. Come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. To to quote the old hymn writer who who, uh, wrote a hymn about this very encounter, O touch the hem of his garment, and thou too shalt be free. His healing power this very hour shall give new life to thee. I paraphrase the old uh, Methodist lay preacher under whom Spurgeon was converted. Grab and hold, don't take a deal of pains. A man needn't go to college to learn to grab hold. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to grab hold. Anyone can grab hold, even a child. So grab hold of Christ, sweating great drops of blood. Grab hold of Christ, hanging on a cross. Grab hold of Christ, dead, buried, and risen. Oh, poor sinner, grab hold. If you're visiting here this morning and you don't know Christ, it's not complicated. This woman did not know all that much about him. She'd only heard reports. She didn't understand how it was that his healing power would be transferred to her. She may even have had a a superstitious kind of view. Her faith was not perfect. It was a weak enough faith that she snuck up from behind. But it was still faith. That its object was Christ. And once you grab hold of him, look with me at what he'll do. Verse 34, as she falls down before him and tells him the whole truth, as she confesses her faith publicly, which is, is what Christ is trying to draw out of her, as he asks who did it. Reading this this morning around the breakfast table, and I was asked by one of our children, did Jesus, did he not know who had done it? No, the, the text makes clear that Jesus, who knows all things, knows who did this. That's why here in the New King James, it says he looked for her who had done it. He knew who it was that had touched her. He's not trying to, to gain any new information here, nor is he trying to embarrass her. But he is trying to draw out from her a public confession of the faith that she has just expressed in grabbing hold the hem of his garment. And once she does, he says to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction.
It's a beautiful verse. There's a couple things about it. First, when, when it says your faith has made you well, again, the, the Greek is your faith has saved you. So Christ has more than just physical healing in mind. So by faith, she grabs hold of Christ and is saved with all that entails, which is why he then pronounces a benediction on her and says, go in peace, shalom, wholeness, and be freed from your affliction." A statement by which he restores her to society. A statement by which he, the great high priest, pronounces her clean and removes the unclean stigma that's been attached to her for the last 12 years like an embarrassing name tag. Jesus cares for her body, mind, and soul, relieving her spiritual, social, physical, and emotional suffering, showing her that he is worth casting ourselves on in faith. Showing us that he is worth casting ourselves on in faith, that he is indeed a beautiful savior. Notice another thing. Notice the very first word that Jesus says to her. Verse 34, and again, note what it says in the verse just before this. It says that this woman comes to him fearing and trembling. She comes to him in great fear, and yet in the very first word that Jesus speaks to her, he calms her fears and says, daughter, your faith has made you well. You know, this is the only time in the entire Bible that Jesus calls anyone daughter. And he saves it for this physically fragile, socially stigmatized, spiritually outcast, penniless, fearing and trembling woman. He puts her fears to rest and says, daughter. Can you put yourself in the shoes of this woman and imagine what that would have felt like to hear him say that word, daughter? For 12 years, people have avoided you. For 12 years, people have called you unclean and unworthy. Perhaps you've begun to believe it yourself, that you're not worth it, that you're damaged goods, that you're better left alone. But Jesus doesn't say any of those things. He says, daughter, which is not only a term of endearment, though it's certainly not less than that, but as one commentator says, it is a recognition of the new relation she now sustained to him as one of his spiritual seed. One of those of whom Isaiah 53 speaks when it says he shall see his offspring. Beloved, we don't have to imagine what it would have felt like for him to call us a daughter because he says the same thing to us this morning as you grab hold the hem of his garment by faith, even an imperfect faith. She may not have um, had the, the, the assurance of one like Job, who we'll see this afternoon in Job 19, says, I know that my Redeemer lives. But even though she may not have had the same level of assurance, she is no less justified. This woman who likely feared that she would be condemned for touching Christ is instead accepted. 
This woman who dared not come to him directly but instead went from behind is now affirmed intimately. This woman who came with shame is received in tenderness. This woman who is embarrassed by her bleeding is not repulsive to her savior but is welcomed. And though she's been excluded from the temple for 12 years is now welcomed by the one who John chapter 2 tells us is the temple. In this very moment, she is welcomed into the presence of God incarnate. These are the grace of Jesus in this passage. And even as you behold this grace, do you, do you see the hints that the grace he bestows here is not without cost? She receives his healing power, yes, but in order for that to happen, verse 30 tells us that power goes out from him. In other words, he, in, in, in some sense, in his humanity, loses power so that she might gain it. And in the same way, he identifies with her uncleanness, becoming legally unclean in the eyes of the Pharisees so that she might be clean. Remember, Leviticus 15 says that if you come in contact, even if you sit on the same couch or bed or chair that such an unclean one has sat upon, you will be made unclean. And here Jesus allows himself to be touched by her. Here we see a shadow of Calvary where Christ becomes unclean so that we might be clean, where he becomes weak, that we might be strong, where he will bleed so that she might not. Where he will become cursed so that we might have peace. He will be cast off by the Father so that we might be called sons and daughters. He will take our shame so that, so that we might have none. His beloved is a savior we can trust. A tender, approachable, gentle, self-giving, willing to enter into our mess, willing to take our curse, not ashamed by the most embarrassing things about us, savior. Who wants us to see his grace in Mark chapter five this morning. And yet, as we get caught up in, in beholding this beautiful encounter between Jesus and this woman, we, we might wonder, um, what's become of Jairus' daughter? You might wonder, as all of this is going on, what is Jairus thinking? Might he be thinking, Jesus, it's, it's nice that you've healed this woman, but don't you think that my daughter's situation is a bit more urgent Perhaps he's, he's thinking, couldn't you maybe have just healed this woman and, and then skipped the bedside manner and, and got on with where we're going? You, you, you said a couple verses ago that you were coming with me to heal my daughter, but we're still here. Jesus, she's had this condition for 12 years. My, my daughter, though, is at, uh, at, at death's door. She's at the point of death. And yet you stop to talk with this woman. You go out of her way to, to try to draw this public confession out of her. These two were in the same emergency room. Any doctor who treated this woman first and then stopped to chat with her while a little girl was dying might be sued. One pastor says Jesus is behaving like that kind of reckless doctor. And now the great physician is liable to be sued for malpractice, but the great physician will not be hurried. And even though the little girl does die in verse 35, as, as we come to the final scene of our passage, Jesus calms Jairus' troubled heart and says, do not be afraid, only believe. 
Jesus is telling this synagogue ruler, Jesus is telling us gathered here this morning in Jordan, I don't operate according to your schedule. If you've ever been to a cross-cultural wedding, sometimes there's a bit of tension as uh, one family from one culture may not value punctuality in the same way that those from another culture do. So while you might have a panicky, pacing mother on the one side wondering where half the guest list is, the other side is not so worried because they operate according to a different schedule. We see something like that here with Christ. He operates according to a different schedule. As Jairus gets the news of his now-deceased daughter, as some of you perhaps wonder, when is God going to get a hold of my wayward child? Or when is God going to hear my prayers on on behalf of, of my sick child? As we ask these questions, Mark chapter 5 confronts us with the reality that no matter what culture we are from, God's sense of timing will confound our sense of timing. Because he doesn't answer to us. And because he doesn't, he is able to display his power and his mercy and his compassion in ways far greater than we could ever even imagine. As through the waiting, he molds and matures us. And if he does eventually answer our prayer, it is often in ways that go far beyond what we've even asked. Remember, Jairus here um, comes to Jesus looking for a fever cure. Jesus gives his daughter new life. He answers Jairus' prayer in ways that go far above and beyond what he could have ever asked or imagined. We see the same sort of thing throughout church history. Think of, of Augustine's mother, Monica, who pled with God for years to convert her prodigal son. As Augustine said, irrigating the ground beneath her with the tears that she poured out to heaven. And when God eventually answered her prayer, he went above and beyond what Monica had asked and made her son one of the most influential theologians the church has ever seen. Maybe you know the story uh, more recently of uh, Christopher Yuan, whose mother had prayed for years that her gay son would turn to Christ in faith who once fasted for 39 days, bombarding heaven with prayers for her son. And then after several years of this, not only did he turn to Christ, but God raised him up to make him a key voice in ministering to the same-sex attractive. The Lord delayed, and yet he had something more in mind. And so it is with Jairus. So Jesus says, do not fear, only believe. It's as if he says, believe like that woman you just saw. Jairus, if I can heal her 12 years of bleeding, then I can raise your 12-year-old daughter. Only believe. And so just as Jesus went with him in verse 24, so he walks with him again in verse 37. In fact, the text tells us his compassion is such that as soon as he overhears the word that is brought to Jairus, he immediately calms his fears. And then he enters into the house of weeping in verse 38. And when the mourners mock him for saying she's only asleep, he proceeds to take her by the hand, raise her up, and turn the laughter of scorn that had filled that house into laughter of joy. And again, don't miss the fact that what Jesus is doing is entering into her uncleanness in order to make her clean. Numbers 19, verse 11, whoever touches a dead body shall be unclean for seven days. 
Numbers 19.14, everyone who comes into the tent or the house of a dead body shall be unclean. Yet Jesus enters into Jairus' home. He takes this dead girl by the hand and says, arise. This, beloved, is a preview of our resurrection. It is a preview of that day when God will finally loose the chains of death and we will enter into eternal life and the Lord will say, arise, and our bodies will rise from the grave. And just as this resurrected girl is immediately given something to eat, so we will be given something to eat at the wedding supper of the Lamb. You see, Jesus does far more for Jairus' daughter than he could have ever hoped. Jesus does far more for us than we could ever imagine, and this is why he's worthy of our trust. This is why we can entrust our children to him, because he is the God of resurrection, because he is the God who cleanses that which is defiled, which ultimately is what baptism is. Nate and Jesse, Nathan and Shannon, As you have brought your girls to the font this morning, you can do so in confidence that God will cleanse them. You can do so in confidence that he will raise them up with Christ and give them new life, that they will be born again by water and the Spirit. In Mark chapter 5, God shows his eagerness to do this, that he cares even more about our sons and daughters than we do. Just as Jairus pleads earnestly with Christ on behalf of his daughter, so Christ takes her by the hand and says, little girl, arise. Can you hear the affection in Jesus' voice? Or as he takes the woman in verse 33, who falls down in fear and trembling, and he calls her daughter, can you sense the affection in Jesus' voice? This is someone we can entrust our children to. This is someone who will hear our prayers for their sake as we cry out for their salvation. Remember, he's also not bound by our sense of timing. Jairus thought that his daughter was gone, but Christ worked a miracle. And he can do the same with our children even if we think it's too late. I read one... uh, commentator this week who who said, commenting on that statement in uh, verse 35, where it says, why trouble the teacher any further? That that is always the wrong response to the great physician. That is always the wrong response to Christ, that it is not too late. Jairus thought his daughter was gone, but Christ worked a miracle. The same with our children comes to raise the dead both spiritually and one day physically. He comes to heal the sick. He comes to cleanse those who are unclean, born in sin. As you've already confessed this morning, our children are, and the vows that you've made. And he comes to bring them peace and to call them sons and daughters. So trust that he will. Even, beloved, if, if the situation, if your situation seems helpless, seems hopeless, even perhaps if you have delayed in praying for them as Jairus may have delayed, trust him. 
But don't exercise that trust by presuming. Exercise it by pleading, by imploring him earnestly for the sake of your children, grabbing hold of the hem of his garment by faith for yourself and for them. That's what we're doing as we gather together each Lord's Day for worship and bring our children with us. That's what we're doing as we bring our children before the baptismal font. That's what we're doing as we come to the throne of grace in family prayer. It's what we're doing as we intercede for our children and our grandchildren. We are grabbing hold of the hem of his garment and begging for grace. And we never stop begging for grace because we never stop being helpless. We never stop for the entirety of our Christian life being dependent on him. The one who comes to bring help to the helpless. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that in Christ you give help to the helpless. That that, in fact, is the story of the history of redemption, even as Adam and Eve, fearing and trembling, covering themselves in fig leaves, even as they too were helpless, you came to comfort them with the promise of your son. And even as your people Israel and all of humanity before the coming of Christ too found themselves helpless, you sent your son into the world to bring help to the helpless. That's what we see in this very passage. Lord, we thank you that in Christ you heal our diseases as we've sung already in Psalm 103 that there is coming a day where there be full and complete healing which we see even pictured in these two, uh, two miracles. That in Christ you bring us peace. You cleanse us. You give us life. And you call us sons and daughters. Lord, we pray that each of these things would be true of Eliana and of Elodie, that you would cleanse them of their sin, that you would embrace them with your adopting love, that you would raise them up to new life as they behold the beautiful Savior of Mark chapter 5 and are taught of him by their parents. Lord, we pray that you would give them grace to do so and to uh, do so prayerfully, asking you to add your blessing on their labors. And Lord, we pray that these same things would also be true of those children now grown who have wandered from the flock, who have been taught of this glorious Christ, but have not responded in faith. Lord, we pray that you would give all of us grace to bring them before your throne of mercy. All this we pray in 